0: first book in the Bible is a book you've probably heard of. It's called Genesis.
1: Genesis comes from a Hebrew word. uh, It's pronounced reshit, and it just means beginning.
0: Now, there's a lot of stories from the book of Genesis, and it's easy just to pull out a specific story and, and try to tell you what it might mean. But we think the best way to understand this book is to look at the book as a whole and show you how the whole thing is designed.
1: The book is designed to fall into two main Parts. You have uh, chapters 1 through 11, which is telling the story of God and the whole world. And then you have the second part, which is about God and Abraham's family, as chapters 12 through 50. And how the two of those parts relate, that's where you find the message of the book.
0: Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. The first part of Genesis begins with a creation story where God creates
1: everything. And how exactly that happens, of course, that's where all the debates come. But he takes a dark, watery, Chaos, and he turns it into a beautiful garden where humans can can flourish that sounds nice it does sound nice in fact seven different times god says of all that he's made that it's good and this is
0: where we meet the first human characters in the bible adam and eve
1: they're they're both individual characters but they're also representative adam is the hebrew word for humanity and eve is the hebrew word for life and God creates them in his image. In other words, humanity reflects or is meant to reflect the, the, the creativity, the goodness and character of the creator out into the world that he's made. And they're supposed to reproduce and make cultures and neighborhoods and art and gardens and, and everything else. But he gives them a, a moral choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And this is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. And he tells them... Don't eat of the fruit of this tree or you will die. What's that all about? So up till now, God has been the one defining and providing what is good. And so God is the one with the knowledge of good and evil. But now this tree represents a choice. Will the humans trust God's definition of good and evil? Or are they going to seize the opportunity and define good and evil for themselves? And Adam and Eve... Eat the fruit. This is the core biblical explanation for that concept of sin. That desire to call the shots myself. It's the inward turn of the human heart to do what's good for me and my tribe, even if it's at the expense of you and, and your tribe.
0: And the problem is humans are horrible at defining good and evil without God. And so now that humanity's made
1: this choice, things get really really they really bad. So Genesis three through 11 is like tracing this downward spiral of all all humanity. So Adam and Eve, they can't trust each other anymore. And so there's a little story about how they were naked and felt fine about it beforehand, but now they feel shameful because all of a sudden Adam's definition of good and evil might be different than Eve's and so they hide from each other.
0: Then there's another story of temptation, Cain is jealous of his brother abel and he gives in and kills him
1: there's a story right after cain about a guy named lamech and all we know about lamech is that he accumulates wives like property and he sings songs about how he's a more violent vengeful person than cain ever was and he's proud of it
0: things get so bad with the human race that we see god decide to just wipe us out
1: yeah we typically think of the flood story is about God being angry, but it actually begins with God's sadness and grief about the state of his world. And so out of his passion to preserve the goodness of his world, he washes it clean with the flood.
0: But there's a glimmer of hope. He, he chooses Noah and his whole family and he saves them on this boat. Yeah, don't
1: forget about the
0: animals. Right. And the animals. So Noah and his family are going to reboot all of humanity. I mean, he must be a pretty great guy.
1: But this is a story most people don't know because it's kind of weird is that Noah gets off the boat and he plants a vineyard and he gets totally plastered and then something sketchy happens in his tent with his son. It's a tragic story. So
0: from here humanity grows again but things are as bad as before.
1: And the last story is the famous story of the Tower of Babel. And in this story you have all of the nations uniting together to use this new technology they have, the brick. And they want to make a name for themselves and build this big city with a huge tower that will reach up to the gods. But God knows that this city will be a nightmare. And so in his mercy, he scatters them. And all of these stories, they're underlining the same basic idea. When humans seize autonomy from God, when they define good and evil for themselves, it results in a world of tragedy and death.
0: And this leaves you wondering... Is there any hope for humanity?
1: Yes, yeah, there is. It's the very next story that answers that question. It's the beginning of God's mission to rescue and restore his world.
2: And uh, that's where we're going to pick up the story. Uh, Today in Genesis chapter 12, uh, and we're going to read that. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow on the screen as well. Or if you have it on your phone on the Bible app, we're going to read the first few verses of chapter uh, 12 and then also a few verses from chapter 15. And we're looking at the story of of Abraham today. Verse one, chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And then also from Genesis 15, the first six verses. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. The Lord took Abram outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. So we have this man, Abram, and God kicks off his strategy for redeeming humanity with this one man, with with Abram. That's why he's called the the father of, of the faith. And what we discover as we look at Abram's story is he's a man who has great capacity for faith because after all, he is willing to uproot his family, leave everything he knows behind and travel to a land he's never even seen before simply because God told him to do so. Simply because God said, if you do this, there, there's, there's, there's this, this promise, this covenant I want to establish with you. So we see that he is a man of great faith, but his life is often a mess, we're going to see, because his faith isn't complete. And always consistent. He sounds a lot like like us, doesn't he? But the good news is, despite his flaws and sins, def- despite our flaws and our sins, God is faithful, even when we're not. Now, as we look at this, this covenant, this pact that God makes with Abraham, uh, before we jump into it too much more, let's focus in on three of its components. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the first one is nationhood. God says, I'm going to take you and your descendants and make them and make you into a great nation with a homeland. And guess what? Israel is still here today, even after being utterly conquered and decimated multiple times throughout the pages of history. God also says, "Renown. I'm going to make your name famous. People are going to remember you. They're going to know of you. And today, thousands of years after Abraham lived and died, he's still revered by Jews, by Muslims. By Christians and by many others. He's one of the best-known figures in human history, not because he had faith in what he could do, but because he had faith in what God can do and that God would do it. Blessing: the third component. God says, "I'm going to bless other, I'm going to bless your people, your nation, and through your people, you'll be a blessing to the whole world, peoples of all races and SSEs and kinds. In other words, you're going to be a missionary people. I'm going to work my mission, the mission of God, through you to reestablish my plans, to to redeem the world, to redeem individuals as well. And we can see that God's intention has been to bless us from the very beginning. Remember this from Genesis 1? So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said... Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God blessed them. God's intention for us is blessing, not curse. Now, we don't always experience that blessing sometimes in our lives because of what we think is what it would look like because of the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of our own choices God's intention is to, to bless us with his power, his presence, his grace, his love, his mercy, his peace. We can see God's continued desire to bless us in the prayer he gives the priest to pray over the people of God. It's a prayer we often end at the a prayer of benediction we use at the end of the service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So without a doubt, God's intention is for us to experience his blessing, whatever however that manifests itself in our life. So we go back to Genesis twelve with this initial statement of the covenant that God is gonna make with Abraham. And we discover in verse four that he's already well advanced. He's seventy five years old at the time of this, this agreement, this covenant. And we know from chapter eleven that Sarah is also quite old. She's sixty five years old at the time. And God says, I'm going to work through you and your wife, through a child I'm going to give you, to make a great nation. It's going to bless the whole earth. It's no wonder that Abraham is known as a person of great faith. Maybe you saw in the headlines this this past week uh, about um, a couple in India. Maybe you saw it. 80-year-old man, 73-year-old woman, never had children. They decided they wanted to have children. And so through the um, miracle of modern science, they used IV. She became pregnant with twins, just deliver them via C-section. I mean, that's pretty incredible. But Abraham and Sarah did not need the intervention of medical technology. Check out what it has to say about this in, in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, He had no children, wasn't able to become a father because he considered God faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, Abraham, and he is good as dead. In other words, he's one foot in the grave came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore by faith. Now, now what is faith? It's a term we throw around a lot. What is faith? The Bible describes Abraham's faith very eloquently in Genesis 15. Abram believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord. He believed what God told him. He took him at his word. He believed in the promise. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness means that we are in a right standing with God. When we take God at his word... When we put it into practice, when we believe what he says about us, about Jesus, about the world, about himself, about how to live our lives, we're in right standing with him through faith in Jesus. And we see Abraham's belief in action in this passage, because right after we read this, after God gives Abraham the covenant, we read this. So Abraham took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So, a 75-year-old and a 65-year-old, they pack everything up, they leave everything behind that they know, and they travel days to a place they'd never been before, simply because God told them to. But then something bizarre happens. After this huge step of faith by Abram and Sarah... God decides to take 25 years to follow through on His promise of a child—a quarter of a century. Do the math. That means now what? Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah is 70. Uh, she is um, 90 years old. Did the math for a second. 90 years old. I mean, they're they're as old as dirt, right? I mean, who has children at 190? And it's no wonder they laugh incredulously when. God tells them after years and years, hey, I'm still on the job. I've not forgotten my promise. I'm still going to follow through. Listen to their reaction. Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. And I will bless her and I'll surely give you a son by her. And I'll bless her so that the, she will be the mother of nations and kings of people will, will come from her. And Abraham fell face down. He laughed. And said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Sarah has a similar reaction in Genesis 18. Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my, my Lord Abraham is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? And then the Lord says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I will return to you at the point in time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And it says, Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. Please said, yes, you did laugh. Now, don't ever think that God doesn't have a sense of humor, and an ironic one at that, because God tells them, name this child, this boy, name him Isaac. And what does Isaac mean? It means laughter. John Ortberg, who's uh, uh, one of my favorite authors, describes the absurdities of this situation this way. He says, take this child born in a geriatric ward for which Medicare picks up the tab. This child named Isaac, which means laughter. Abraham and Sarah laughed at first because they didn't believe it. And then they laughed at the sheer impossibility of it. They laughed because they were told they would have a son when they had reached an age where they didn't even dare to buy green bananas. That's pretty old. And after the child was born, they laughed because they did believe. They laughed that when Sarah went to Walmart, she was the only shopper to buy both Pampers and Depends. They laughed that both parents and baby had to eat the same strained vegetables because nobody in the whole family had a single tooth. It's kind of an interesting way to think about it. So back to Abraham's story. He hears this calling from God and he goes, amazing act of faith. But there's another component to every journey of faith. And it was there in Abraham's journey. Waiting on God's calling and promises is essential to faith and redemption. So remember, we're talking about redemption. What is redemption? It's God's plan to, to work in the world, to get us out of our captivity to sin, to, put us, to get us on the right path, off the wrong path, and get us right with him and with each other. And bless us through all the good intentions he has for us. But it often requires waiting, doesn't it? And, and we stink at waiting. And Abraham did too. In fact, we see as we look at his story here, he has a very bad habit of reacting very poorly to perceived threats. For instance, shortly after he got to Canaan, a famine strikes the land. The Bible doesn't indicate that he consults God what to do. Instead, he does what we think would be a logical thing. He he simply heads to Egypt because there's more food there. But Egypt has dangers. In fact, it's so potentially dangerous, he jeopardizes his own marriage and a promise of the covenant to save his own skin. Listen to this. As he was about to enter Egypt, he told his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, They will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, and they'll let you live. In other words, we're going to take her for ourselves. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And it happens like that. They come to Egypt. Pharaoh's officials see her. She's gorgeous. They say, hey, Pharaoh, you should bring her into your court. He brings her into his court, his harem. And because of her brother being Abraham. Abraham is treated well. He gets sheep and cattle out of the deal. He gets male and female donkeys. He gets male and female servants. Hang on to the male female servants for a second. There's gonna, we're going to come back to that. And it says he gets a lot of camels. But the Lord inflicts the disease on Pharaoh and his household because of this setup, this arrangement. And Pharaoh finds out about it and says, what are you doing to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your your, your wife, not your sister. He says, take her and get out of here. And and so they leave with all the stuff that Pharaoh had given them. So basically, this father of the faith, Abraham, what does he do? When he's faced with with a tough situation, he pimps his wife out. That's basically what he pimps his wife out because he lacks faith in God to care for him. Because he's worried for himself. So... For being known as a man of great faith, Abraham made some pretty sketchy decisions, didn't he? Once wasn't enough, though. It happens again in Genesis 20. The same thing. They come in contact with this guy named King Abimelech, very powerful man. He does the same thing to save his skin. So he has problems with faith and trust. But Sarah also has some problems with faith and trust. She begins to try to sort things out for herself. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Remember the female servants that they acquired in Egypt? And we're going to see that one faithless move leads to another one. It's often how it works. So Sarai said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And so Abraham does that, and Hagar gets pregnant. And no surprise, it creates tension between Sarah and, and Hagar. And it turns into this huge mess, and you wouldn't have been blamed God at all if you'd said, okay, I'm, I'm done with these two. I'm going to start over and make a pact or a covenant with somebody who has a little bit more faith. I mean, come on. But the good news, again, is that God is faithful even when we lack faith. And God takes the mess that these two have made, and despite it, he works through it to bless them and ultimately us. And it's because of stories like Abraham and Sarah's that Paul can, the Apostle Paul can make statements like this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So let's think about Romans eight twenty-eight in relation to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham has attempted to prostitute his wife a couple of times. She's loaned him out as a stud so they can have a surrogate child. Despite all this faithless behavior, God works through the situation, even after they've made this humongous mess and they have this child named Isaac. And in the process, we're going to see this flawed man, God's going to be working in his life to transform him as well. Which takes us to our third point. Redemption leads to valuing the one who blesses, the blesser even more than the blessing. So they have this child. We think that's the climax of the story. Through all their foibles and flaws, we finally, they finally have a child. But there's more to the story. A very dramatic turn. Let's take a look in Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Go, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. And Abraham has to be thinking, what? But well, there's no outward protest, at least in the scripture. So he gathers what's needed. He takes his son and he travels to Mount Uriah, Moriah. Again, Genesis 22. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on top of it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, and he took out his hand with a knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And it tells us that Abraham stops. He looks up. There's a ram stuck in a thicket. He takes the ram and puts him in place of his son, and he makes a burnt offering. And it says that Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And the angel goes on to say, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you, and your descendants will be as great as the stars in the sky and the, the sea on the seashore. And everybody will be blessed through you. Now, nat- there's a couple of natural questions here. One of them is, How Abraham could have even entertained the thought of sacrificing his teenage son. My question is, do you have teenage sons? Just kidding. Just kidding. Don't worry, Reed. You'll be all right. Um, But scripture gives us some insight into Abraham's thoughts. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the, sacrifice, the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So Isaac is the promise they've been waiting for, and he's willing to possibly eliminate it, that promise. But then here's his insight into his thinking. Abraham reasoned, it says, that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back. From death. That's a huge step of faith. Now those of you who are parents know how much you value your own life, but you value your children's more. We would be willing to to take the place of our child in an instant if it meant they could live. And so God is is, tests Abraham here. But the test shows that Abraham how far he has come, how far his faith has progressed. Even in facing the sacrifice of his son, Isaac, his only son, Abraham is able to reason that God could raise him from the dead. And we see that Abraham has come to the place where he truly trusts this God, this blesser, even more than the the blessing and the promise that he's received. He's able to take this precious child and, and place him in God's hands, trusting and believing that his father is good. And because of this faith, this, we come to our final point. All nations are blessed through Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. Now, here's the historical irony. God provides a sacrificial ram in the place of Isaac, and that sacrifice takes place upon a mountain called in, in Moriah. In Second Chronicles 3, in the case that Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah, making it the mountain where Jerusalem exists. So it's quite possible that these locations are the same, which means while Abraham's son Isaac was spared by a substitutionary sacrifice on the mountain, Abraham's later descendant and God's son, Jesus Christ, was not. Jesus, in fact, became a substitute, a sacrifice for us, for our sins, the only sacrifice that will ever be needed again to redeem us as individuals, to redeem his creation, to redeem his world. Paul puts it this way. In Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But all are justified by grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And it says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. One more question, real quickly, another minute or two. We've asked, how could Abraham consider this? He's even mean. How could God consider this? Asking Abraham to do this. Across the pages of history, God is showing us what it cost him to give up his son. God is helping us feel through our empathy with Abraham and Isaac what it costs God the Father and Jesus Christ God the Son. Why would God make such a horrific sacrifice? Love. Love for us. For God so loved the world. Why? He gave his only son so we could be made right with him if we believe in him. He's a sacrifice for us, right? God is simply asking us to believe that he loves us, to trust in him, to put our trust in him, to, 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 to seek him and to, and to acknowledge that we need forgiveness, we need salvation, we need to be made right with him again. But it takes a step of faith. Dale Moody once wrote, Some say faith is the gift of God. So is the air, but you have to breathe it. So is bread, but you have to eat it. So is water, but you have to drink it. Faith means taking God at his word, it means leaving earth for the promised land. Faith means believing that God will keep his promises and being patient as we wait for the fulfillment. God is calling you to trust him. On the journey of faith, will you do so? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you for the example of Abraham, a flawed, imperfect man who made some choices that caused us to shake our heads. But Lord, if we're honest, we do some of the same things, maybe different things, but, but things that we know aren't right, that show our weakness and our sinful nature. But Lord, Abraham was also a man of faith, and he grew in his relationship with you. So Lord, help us to be people of faith and to grow in our understanding of you and our trust in you. We thank you especially for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, that you did not hold back anything for us, but gave him willingly. And he gave his life willingly so that we could be made right with you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And we ask this and offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.